0: Welcome to Built to Play, games and technology
1: for the arts inclined. I'm Armin Bali, And I'm Daniel Rosen. This week, we ponder the nature of UbiLand and get down and dirty with ethics.
0: Plus, we revisit the design of a board game based on a video game, and then we're going to give you a quick preview of what's to come. But, but for- what would you want to visit UbiLand? Tell me the journey that's going to take me to, to, to this place. So... Because I mean, I know what it takes to get to Disneyland. I buy one of those videotapes, and then they 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 hypnotize you into getting a pair of tickets, mm-hmm. and then you wake up one day and you're in a Disney hotel room, and then you venture into you venture in Orlando, Florida. Yeah. How does uh, UbiLand work?
1: So UbiLand, you get you book a plane ticket to Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. Okay. That's your first step. That's pretty far away. Hot, the hottest place on it. Not, I mean, not physically the hot. The coolest place to be. But the, the, the if best you're a place to get happen in Ubisoft fan. It's the best place to get sweet jams. Absolutely, um, and sour jams if that's the kind of preserve you're into. Okay, cool. They have lots of different <laughs> kinds of fruit preserves. I'm
0: a very, I'm really into fig jams now. Oh yeah, it's great.
1: Um, you're gonna get there. You're gonna get into line, and they're going in line. They're gonna ask you if you would like to purchase the regular park pass. Right. You can pack, you can purchase a park pass, season pass that will get you into the park for the rest of the season, or a park pass, season pass, season pass, which will get you season pass passes for every season forthcoming. At which point they will add new content. <laughs> to, Once wait, you're to to in, this theme park. To this theme park. Once you're in the theme park, you will find that most of the attractions are actually closed because of various glitches in their programming. Uh, how and they all star white men. Exclusively, exclusively white
0: men. But exclusively except exclusively white game. men,
1: and all the only thing for sale mm-hmm. is Aiden Pierce's iconic hat. <laughs> in fact, everybody around is just sort of a white man in a trench coat with an iconic hat. They're all it's it's an oddly it's an oddly
0: open world style theme park of Chicago. Yeah, um, for which it's just a recreation of Chicago in the middle of Kuala Lumpur. There's also just a Ubisoft office in which you can play Assassin's Creed in. <laughs>
1: Um, <laughs> it's just a couch yeah. <laughs> It's just a couch It's so strange No So uh, Ubiland Is apparently opening Ubisoft's opening a theme park It's not called Ubiland We're uh, assuming it's called Ubiland
0: Okay so this it is, could be Ubi World This is made by Popular known Open world game
1: designer Ubisoft It could be Ubi, Six Flags over Ubisoft Okay It could be uh, Yeah Popular open world factory uh, French open world factory
0: Quebec open world factory, French open world factory. Um it's what is going to and it's going to be in Malaysia in 2020. So this is apparently currently I mean they've it's just probably just started building it I guess, pro- at this point.
1: They probably just started designing it and putting yeah. it together. Right. Um so it will have all the exciting Ubisoft franchises like um <laughs> Assassin I mean, Assassin's Creed. That's probably decent. Um is there... they ha- they will have a Raving Rabbids attraction. What about Rayman? Well, I think that he's being replaced by the rabbits. Okay. He's been pretty much been subsumed by the rabbits. But
0: I, 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 mean, I visited Rayman in the hospital the other day. Um, he looked like in pretty bad shape. The
1: rabbits <laughs> seemed to have got to him. Um, he was delusional. Yeah. Um, he couldn't. He... Well, that's literally what happened to. If you ever read like development stories about Rayman 4, there was supposed yep. to be this whole game called Rayman 4, and then they canceled it because they came up with the rabbits as enemies, and they tested so well that they took over the entire game. Uh, so like, what else is we? I'm thinking there's like a Far Cry Human Safari. Y- yes, in which you hunt people. A just dance discotheque. Okay, yep, that sounds good. Splinter Cell torture chambers. Uh,
0: what about like real Splinter Cell Ugly Apartment? Like, yeah, Splinter- okay, just a, spl- a real crummy apartment. Yeah, just like a lot of beer bottles on the floor. Questions of where is my
1: daughter? Yep. Um, um an empty hole that parking boys kick you into, simply called Prince of Persia. <laughs> <laughs> The Uh, aforementioned just recreation of Chicago.
0: Yes. um, Um, Well, that's a surrounding
1: feature. Like the theme of the park is (laughs) Chicago. Chicago. Um, You know, I've always found it weird that the greater Chicago area is called the greater Chicagoland area. I (laughs) guess that makes a lot more sense now. (laughs) Um,. Okay, so... Ubisoft does actually have a theme park attraction, though. What is it? In France, in the French uh, Futuroscope Park, there is a 4D ride kind of thing where you see very historical recreations reenacted and ruined by rabbits. I would like to point out the Futuroscope sounds like a plot device in a Twilight Zone episode. It
0: it sounds like a plot device in an Assassin's Creed game. It does, right? Yeah. The um, Futuroscope. The Futuroscope is what gets me into the Animus. Yeah.
1: Um, oh, will they have a, par- a part of the Asa- Ubisoft land where you can see the arms of the protagonist of Assassin's Creed ripped off of him, so they can play <laughs> the later games in the series without so need to worry about him? Because that was totally a thing that happened in Assassin's Creed. What? They ripped off his arm. They killed him, but they cut off his limbs to preserve them, so they could still use his DNA to get into the Animus.
0: Wow. Okay.
1: I didn't know, but that was a that was a. Taunt I believe. Back. Remember, I've never beaten Assassin's Creed, but I'm
0: pretty sure that happened. I think we've all beaten Assassin's Creed Assassin's, in our hearts. Yeah, well, in that sense, we've all played these very similar games. Yeah,
1: um, to an ex- to an extent that was probably unhealthy for us. So here's the bigger question for me, though: Why? Why is it stuff doing this? I get that it's like their br- it'll like expand their brand, but like. Is why Malaysia? Been, yeah, why Malaysia? Is their Bandai so strong that they can just like roll with this? Why Malaysia? Like the, uh... <laughs> or do they think that hot like super Ubisoft fans are gonna fly all the way to Malaysia? Like, is there something I should know about Malaysia? <laughs> I, I, like, that's it... the only thing I can think of. But I, I did some research; I couldn't really find anything. Is <laughs> land might be really cheap? They've never had an Assassin's
0: Creed game set in Malaysia. That's a good point. They never had a game set in Malaysia.
1: I'm gonna. Th- this might be repetitive, but why Malaysia? <laughs> why Malaysia. It's really weird. It's such a strange place. Like even the Nintendo theme parks, like in Taiwan or something, they're gonna build it. Yeah, I mean
0: that makes sense. And I can like the thing is like a lot of Ch- I could like I could see them building it in, like in China because there's a lot of like there's that famous um, theme park apparently outside of Shanghai that um, has a like a complete fake version of uh, World of Warcraft characters. Yeah, and just like uses those characters, copyright infringing. But like, and Malaysia's probably not much better with its copyright laws, but wh- who's the market for this? Like, maybe I can like, Indonesia seems significantly wealthier. Yeah. Um, Taiwan has a very thriving middle class who can go to these things. They're just pop... Theme parks seem to be popping up in China. Like, mm-hmm. and it- land isn't super expensive,
1: but what... Why Malaysia? <laughs> <laughs> I really don't know. It makes no sense. I did as much research as I could and I could not find an answer to that question, that burning question.
0: <laughs> um, yeah, I'm just gonna, this is going to puzzle me until we get a Ubisoft employee on the phone. And I'm just going to the interview is going to start. I'm going to say going to do all the things we say as we start an interview and it's just going to go, "Why Malaysia?" and a dead
1: silence until I get a proper answer. So they're going to start you're going to say, "No, no, 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 no." "Why Malaysia?" Malaysia. <laughs> Why? So what do you want to see? What, so okay, here's the question. Where We know where an Ubisoft park would make sense, France or Montreal. Exactly. But what other studio, because I don't think even I want to see an Ubisoft theme park. No. What publisher theme park do I want to see? We have already know that Nintendo is partying up with Universal. Right. Sega has a theme park, I believe, somewhere in Taiwan or Japan. Yes. I can't remember exactly where. What theme park, video game theme park, would you want to see?
0: Uh I think it like the 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 obvious one is either a Majesco theme park. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah okay. or an or an Activision Blizzard theme park. Or I okay. guess just Activision now.
1: Well is it not Activision Blizzard anymore? I it's, think it's just Activision. Do they divorce? They, they they renamed themselves. Okay, yeah, they did do that. Mm. But I still you could still have the Activision Blizzard properties. Yes. For example, uh you too could experience the frustration of having to deal with people who pay for Hearthstone when you try to play for free. <laughs> There could be a room just dedicated to. They could have the real cards that you can play. Yeah, could, uh, you could. Which boy, the RNG on that would be <laughs> just a man runs in and throws your cards around. <laughs> uh, uh, you could play a real guitar, just like Guitar Hero. Exactly.
0: Um, you could uh go to actual concerts. It'd mm-hmm. be or um I, I highly recommend this. You could go put on like a fantasy style costume and fill out your your character sheet. Um fill in your strength, your defense, your, all your necessary mm-hmm, attributes. Mm-hmm. And then you get this foam sword mm-hmm. and then potentially like a wand, and then scream Lightning! Lightning! Lightning okay. bolt! Lightning That's, bolt! Alright. Um, um
1: throughout the park. What would you call that attraction?
0: I would call it um I guess I would have to call it live action world of warcraft. So la wow.
1: I was thinking Paul Art Cop three. <laughs> Well, that's currently under production. I'm afraid they can't, <laughs> that can't be reused. And it's really unfortunate. Uh, anyway, the point of all of this is why, Mal- why, why Malaysia? Why Malaysia? <laughs> why Malaysia? <laughs> Malaysians, please call in and tell us. We need to know. Yeah, <laughs>
0: Malaysians. Call <laughs> us.
1: 555 555 5555. We need to know. Send us mail at 123 Fake Street. Um, <laughs> Built a play at itunes.biz. <laughs>
0: I don't know, mail at built-to-play.ca. Generally, if anybody (laughs) has the answer to this. Yeah, please. I would be very excited to know. Okay, so the last thing we have is... Well, um, second last
1: thing, actually. Second. Second last thing we have is a um we've got two Microsoft stories two. so we can we can put them together hey hey what's up is, this is this is Twix on yeah this is Twixon. this is the return of Twixon. we did it right okay. after the turn of bonus round oh yeah we bring <laughs> back Twixon this week in um, Xbox what's One new- News yeah Twixon. <laughs> oh god this feels so good this feels so good <laughs> I'm glad that that we that America <laughs> that America the people we the people to
0: form a more perfect Twixon. okay. We came together and made this happen. We're very
1: sorry if you're hearing this and you didn't listen to when we literally recorded in my grandparents' office <laughs> and made dumb jokes about and 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 called a segment
0: Twixon. Yes, we attempted to find a cool name for the PS3 one, but um, yeah, we didn't. We just got Twiz, which we just, just got
1: Twiz, which didn't work. And I think Nintendo just eventually became like a sitcom plot. <laughs> yes, it did. Um. <laughs> But uh, with,
0: with this week in Xbox One news, um, they're shutting down a very crucial and important service that has been uh, part of... An X- almost
1: decade-old service.
0: That has been a respected part of that system and a very important place for designers. And that's the Xbox uh, Live Indie Game Store. Um, which, if I'm not mistaken, the highest-ranked game is still a Minecraft clone.
1: It's still seven Minecraft moments yes Uh, you might know the Xbox Live Indie Game Service as a source of games like I made a game with zombies in it the source of uh, Scott Studios which also makes stuff like uh, Dishwasher Zombie and various other games Um, Fortress Craft (laughs) Avatar (laughs) Warfare Don't Lie Don't Die Dateless Dummy and Avatar Falling Downstairs
0: Um, so
1: Clearly. all of which by the way are games i have played. <laughs> Not a joke. I will tell a story at the end of the segment that will blow your mind.
0: This is I'm I'm really excited. Um but very clearly this was a place
1: for quality uh, quality indie. titles. Um basically so, it was a place for indie devs to release very cheap, very small games to basically no one. Um and I mean is it a loss? Uh, I feel like it sort of is cuz I feel like like said, like Scott Studios got their start there. The XNA tool that was discontinued in 2013 uh, was a thing that people got to use, like, "Hey, learn how to make games with this." Before Unity was really a thing, and I hear like
0: XNA was like it, that was an introduction to game design for a lot of people who, yeah. attend, who wanted to get in there. And as as much as as maligned as um, the the indie game store was, it was an introductory platform right. for a lot of people. It
1: was, it, and I feel like it's. I feel like it's a loss in that like, ID at Xbox is more formalized, but it really is more tuned to bigger developers.
0: ID at Xbox is their new platform after XNA was kind of discontinued in yeah, 2013. Yeah, ID at Xbox is the and, Xbox
1: One version yeah.
0: of XNA, basically. And it's basically... There's actually a good, lot of good stuff that is coming out of uh, ID at Xbox, which yeah. is like... Um, Cuphead. Cuphead, uh, IDARB... Uh, Below, um, I believe. Below is uh, technically an idea at Xbox game. Um,
1: There's so, a lot of cool stuff there, but I feel like it's more formalized and much more tuned to larger developers.
0: Yes, and it's much more tuned to established people who they're trying to court as opposed to what the indie game store, which was Very exper- throw whatever
1: garbage you want. experiments. Just yeah. weird experiments that led to some really cool stuff. Um, Microsoft will says the storefront will close around September 25th twenty seventeen, publishing will cease this week. Uh, and around November twenty seventeen, Microsoft will issue final payment to all the developers with games on the service, including actually XNA had this thing where you weren't XBLIG had this thing where you didn't get any money until you cracked $150. Okay. Uh, they will just be paying out whatever to everybody now. Oh, that's good. For the for the last payout. Um apparently more than three thousand three hundred games have been published through XBLIG, which is kind of crazy. That's nuts. Why
0: like I Again, now, I think I this is evidence to show that this, as as joking as much as we joke about
1: this, this was a platform that people used quite a bit. Oh, absolutely, and, and it was kind fair. of
0: like what Steam is now.
1: Yes, but because was... approximately two thousand of those games were at Minecraft and Call of Duty clones. Yes,
0: and now that it's, it's considering that Microsoft didn't like uh,
1: monitor this thing at all, it kind of ended up being this both this wasteland and this bastion. Yeah, there's a lot of really genuinely cool stuff that I played on Xbox Live Indie Games because there was a time. When a couple of friends and I would get some drinks in us, and then we would download approximately 100 Xbox Live Indie Game <laughs> demos and just play the demos in a night. And all these demos are like an hour long. like They're usually timed. Right. And boy, did I play some video games. All right, give me, some, so, give me some... I did actually play Avatar Falling Downstairs, which was a thing wherein your avatar would sort of do like the T-pose that most uh, 3D models do when they don't have any animations on them. You would pick a direction, and you would just throw them downstairs. Okay. And try to collect as many balls on your way down as you could. That was the game. Okay. Uh, if you've ever read the Sweet Bro and Hella Jeff supplemental comic to Homestuck, it was literally that in the video game. <laughs> don't fall down the stairs, brah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I played um, Don't Die Dateless Dummy, which is an anime dating sim. There are a lot of dating sims on XBLIG,
0: but like anime style, like yeah. like like RVs, like act like Western designers? Western
1: designers trying to do anime, like how to draw manga. Oh, ooh, ooh. is how, how 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 was it? It was rough. <laughs> it was rough stuff. Let me tell you, it was not good. There's a lot of bad dating sims on Xbox Live Indie Games, and again, because they're not really monitored, there's not a lot of censorship going on, I don't believe.
0: I can see that.
1: For example, one of the worst games I played was a size drawing shmup called Ovary Overload. No. Wherein you play it as a sperm overloading an ovary. With uh- your sperm bullets. <laughs> I feel like we should have put a content warning on this this segment. Truly. A loss for all. <laughs> a moment of silence for, for our precious, precious XWLIG. <laughs> now let's move on. Let's move on. I already ruined this, I've ruined, this I've ruined the podcast. I ruined the podcast. Okay. Oh, this is a very serious matter. Um, the, um... Yeah, we're getting to something serious. It's the only serious thing we're talking about all all of this whole show. <laughs> if you could only hear my face in my hands right now <laughs> or the, embarrass- the shame I've brought to my people.
0: Oh, well. (laughs) I'm
1: sorry, video games.
0: Um, Video game people will forgive you, but um, unfortunately, the FTC is not forgiving Machinima. Uh, They found uh, Machinima guilty of ethics or something. Something. As you you put down here. As I wrote. Yes. Uh, So way, way back in early 2014. Back when we only had like less than 20 episodes. It was barely a blink
1: in... Uh, back when we eyes. still talked about Twixon,
0: Yeah, back when this was all a thing.
1: Um, we actually did a brief story on what yes, this was. we and talked about, we reported on how Machinima was accused of making a secret partnership with Microsoft to ensure that its YouTube partners would only say positive things about the Xbox One and its hit launch game, Rise, Son of Rome.
0: Oh, it's
1: been a while. I'm so excited. To- <laughs> this has been a real nostalgic show for me. Yeah, this is a. Uh... Twixon Rise, <laughs> dumb, stupid jokes. We never did play Rise in the end. I only played a demo. yeah. I mean, we 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 both played. I'll tell you what. If I am ever to purchase an Xbox One, I will purchase Rise and I will play it and I will return with my findings. <laughs> Good, hot promise.
0: Is it on PC now, though? I don't know. I hope not. I'm not going to look for it. You if just this is an Xbox One exclusive promise. Yeah. Um. Via. Uh, in any case, um. According to a Federal Trade Commission investigation made public last week, um. All
1: of that totally happened. That was, was a real thing. It was super real. Machinima isn't. Ad, Machinima admits it happened, but it also doesn't admit it's guilty. It doesn't think it's a problem. Um, we'll get to that in a second, though. It's so,
0: And it actually turned out to be worse in a couple ways than yeah. what we initially
1: speculated. So there were two specific phases of this marketing campaign. First, five of Machinima's influencers, there's a lot of scare quotes around that word, mm. would upload two video reviews that had very specific instructions on what would be portrayed and what the reviewer could say. I'm um, just to be up like here, so we don't dive into their, what they mean by influencers. It means Let's players. Yeah, like people. Well, who, this was actually before Let's players was, was huge.
0: It's before it was huge, but it was still like basically dude with dude with uh, guy who could record video talks yeah. over their video. Yes, exactly. Mm.
1: Um, so instructions included uh, using a montage of Xbox 360 games, uh, saying positive things about Microsoft products, and talking about Xbox One games the reviewer was looking for. Uh, Microsoft and Microsoft and Machinima had to review these videos before they went live and approve them. Uh, the complaint only the complaint says there were multiple YouTube, five obviously involved in this, but only specifically names two: uh, Adam Sky versus Gaming Dahlberg, who was paid fifteen thousand dollars, and Tim the Syndicate Project Castle, who was paid thirty thousand. Neither of whom disclosed they were paid by Microsoft because of Phase Two. So, phase two of the program has Microsoft
0: pay the YouTubers a dollar for every 1,000 views. The YouTubers were asked specifically not to disclose the agreement and signed uh, non-disclosure agreements to prevent them from doing so. According to a report, um, Machinima uploaded more than 300 videos in the launch window of the Xbox One. Mishima agreed to then settle with the FTC, though the organization is not able to seek civil fines without an order.
1: If Mishima agrees to an order being placed and breaks the order, they can penalize up to $16,000, which is way less than YouTubers were paid in the first place. But, I mean, what this essentially
0: means is that if they were to they, they can't do this ever again. Right. This is, they have gotten their big warning, and if this ever happens again,
1: they will be in hot danger. Right. Uh, which, by the way, is my favorite Nicolas Cage movie. But So, like, having to sign an NDA and not being allowed to talk about this is pretty crazy. Totally. Um, like, not only are you not disclosing it, like, not disclosing it is a breach of ethics, not being allowed to disclose it, it's not the YouTuber's fault. Yeah, that's crazy. But the fact that it was a part
0: of the agreement um, makes it kind of more shameless, the idea that they were intentionally hiding this from people. Like, when,
1: when we discussed this earlier, the, 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 or uh, earlier, like, years ago, the prevailing belief was that Machinima and Microsoft and these YouTubers were kind of working together to hide the fact that this was, a you know, advertising. Yeah. And as it turns out, no, they are actually entirely not at fault. They, if they were, we don't know if they were able. They would disclose it. It's irrelevant whether or not. But they were not allowed to disclose it. This is a very explicit plan from yeah. Microsoft Machinima to basically release advertising under the guise of reviews of criticism. Right. And because of that, it made it feel like they. Um these these things that were previously, like, our
0: assumption was, oh, hey, maybe they didn't, like, YouTube is a very new medium to kind of talk about games, it's a new medium to kind of do these kind of product reviews, and it's interesting in the sense that, like, oh... Maybe they just didn't know. Right? Maybe yeah. this is give them the benefit of a doubt. Maybe they didn't understand the kind of relationship when you have that with a publisher. You you need to make sure if it's the, disclosed. Um, but very clearly, like Machinima
1: was actively trying to
0: make that difficult
1: for people. Right. And Machinima I mean, and the YouTubers might not have known because again, it was a new But Machinima knew. Machinima has been I mean, an organization has been around for around for a long time.
0: Yeah, it's like it's existed prior to YouTube. It's like yeah. Machinima is an
1: like. They should know this stuff, right? And to be fair, they were not; nev- they were never necessarily a journalistic entity. But when you have this kind of content, you should be disclosing it. We've had all this kerfuffle lately about ethics and video game journalism that was never actually about ethics video game journalism. But I do feel like it's a good enough time to talk about how this kind of disclosure doesn't come as often as it should from some of these organizations.
0: And I think one of the interesting things is, like, for instance, um, games aren't the first medium to really do this, and the the issues. Um, the reason that it's particularly glaring is because this is a new it's a new industry and this is a new part of that industry um, but it's all a, a lot of the times it's um, been a part of the, when people talk about movies it's been uh, some of the ways that uh, you remember like it used to be a weird thing that mommy bloggers would get games. Yes, I remember this. And the, that got in trouble with the FTC because they wouldn't disclose the fact that they got these games for free from random game developers, often for like the Nintendo 3DS. Yeah. Um, or for Nintendo DS. Um, And that became a thing. And like there are other, there's issues with music that people, mm. often, or in tra- especially travel journalism, they yes. end up getting sent to different parts of the world and they don't disclose for the fact that their flight and their hotel was paid by someone. Yep. So games aren't alone in this. And it's just important to kind of, um get that like no we're not saying that like people who talk about games are all scammers there's, there's bad things about this in all yeah. parts of the industry it's just important that when you are have this kind of relationship with and, your producer just get it out there yeah and
1: and for the most part i don't think we have a problem of non disclosure in 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 the industry in the criticism of yeah. games i feel like most major organizations do disclose but i do feel like there is sort of a wild west like as you mentioned like this, youtube is a relatively new platform for this stuff it's sort of a, a wild west frontier kind of thing of there's a lot of people who aren't trained for this, who aren't aware that they need to be disclosing. And it's not through any fault of their own. They're not being, like, explicitly unethical people. They just aren't aware of that. Yeah, because it's not something that comes to you. It doesn't necessarily come to you naturally. Why would you think that, you, why would you think that your opinion has changed because it isn't when you get something for free? Why would you, just because you know, you don't think you need to tell everybody else that.
0: And f- one thing I always find interesting is that the arguments for and against what happens when you get a game free to an extent. So for instance, when a lot of game reviewers and a lot of if you, if you, movie critics, they, get, they go to movies for free. They're given yeah. free um, screenings. They're given free copies of a game. And the idea is that um, it's been a tie between the organization and it's done so that the person doesn't know doesn't have an investment in the property, they don't have to, um, they they don't have an investment, so they didn't pay the ticket, they didn't pay the full cost of the game, and because of that, they can make a clearer assessment of the of its value. Right, basically saying that like, I am aware that this thing costs money, but I didn't personally put my own investment into it, and therefore it doesn't necessarily
1: need to be. Don't I don't need to justify this purchase for myself mm. nor do I have to like burn
0: it if it's especially bad. Yeah. Like if it if it was a game that crossed crossed your desk and it, you caught it, like if it was a game that was just like, "Oh, this is a terrible game and I spent $60 for it." You might feel way worse about it yes. or if, and the idea is like what if you divorce this if you just make it free for a lot of people
1: that then all of a sudden it, they don't have to worry about that element of it. Right. There's not objectivity because you're never going to get objectivity in criticism, no. but there's more you're approaching from a more objective place. Yes. Um you're a more honest place. Yes. So certainly that's a better word for it.
0: Yeah. The the other thing is like, um when it then comes to what this is, which is actively paying people to talk about it, that's a much further step in that relationship. Yes. That's very distinctly a promotional step and it the difference is you got to be able to distinctly say when something is criticism and when something is promotional right. even if you want to critique
1: within that promotion exactly you still need to mention that you were paid and you were you were given guidelines by the by the by the publisher by the company by an organization by somebody what you had to say was given now fair point of order mm-hmm. i will you could not pay me enough money to say positive things about Rise of Rome. However, <laughs> I will talk about Rise of Rome for free all day long. Yeah, exactly. Like, there's, it's, there is
0: uh, an element of like, what does the money do to our actual, like, what does the money do to our actual thoughts? Um, I do think that the the bigger concern here
1: is that is the NDA. Like, yes. the, that the, that is specifically that is the explicit like shady business from a cinema that might not even be Microsoft on that. No, that that was in the FTC report. Like they said, like Machinima seemed to be the only person involved in that. And the, the interesting thing is, it seems like Machinima
0: approached Microsoft first. Yeah, that they were the ones who said, "Hey, you have this new console coming out.
1: Let's partner let's up. Let's... let's do a thing. We have YouTube people that we can use for this."
0: But and because of that, they end up setting a lot of the terms, and Microsoft then just completely divorced them from yeah. from it. And that's why they, they aren't really a big part of this. It's not no. like they, they came up to. It, Microsoft it doesn't. It, does, so. it
1: seems like Microsoft was sort of a. Very much the advertiser in this situation, where they just sort of said, we have a product we'd like to advertise, we will give you the money, it is up to you to do that. And Machinima said, okay, but we're not going to disclose that this is advertisement.
0: Yeah, and I don't know if that was like, hey, that was a thing that was like a plus, like Mm. hey, we won't, we'll pretend that this is real things, and... Well,
1: I'm sure that's, I'm sure that is theoretically a plus for somebody on the line, but who Mm. knows if it was presented to Microsoft. Yeah,
0: that's that's the question, right? It's like, was it, did it come out like that? Um... But yeah, I mean, it's. I think it's interesting, and I think it's important that people in any part of the industry, whenever you, at least think about how you're getting the product and what relationship you have with with it. I mean, essentially, what this is is an enthusiast press is a very is a is a kind of press with a lot of close knit relations with the things you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the times, it's, like we know, I mean,
1: we don't. It's not like we're friends of a lot of people around, but we do know a lot of people in the Toronto game we, scene. We, we're we're about as friendly with them as you know you would be for like a passing acquaintance. Which yeah. one could argue might change your opinion about something. I mean, but we see them a lot. Yeah. Like we we run into them, we speak with them a lot, we talk with them for the show a lot, we see them at events all the time. We've had
0: people. We have people who've done multiple interviews for because yep. of the fact
1: that they're close and they're doing it, interesting projects. And there's certainly, one or two of them that one or two of us have had a beer with you know on occasion. It's yeah. not you know it's not unusual.
0: Yeah, and. That's I mean that, that's a that's a
1: thing that's a part of it we do because it's important to build these relationships and yeah. a part of it is because they're nice well, people. I mean, we can even give like full disclosure. Like we report we've reported on the Hand Eye Society before. Mm-hmm. One of my closest friends like runs their you know not not their like public relations but like is their event planner and stuff like that. Yeah like, yeah
0: like it's it's a little it's, it's a lot of stuff like that and as a result it's it's it kind of it is a weird thing to to be in this industry this part of the industry. Um, but i that's what makes disclosure all the more important right
1: so full disclosure uh, we both have beards right now <laughs> just saying just putting that i don't know if you can hear them on the microphones <laughs> i've been
0: trying to get closer and closer just to the mic to kind of get, get see what, see if the beard talks yeah right but you want to catch it in the act so yeah. you have like a proof of it cuz you only ever hear
1: it at night exactly.
0: <laughs> yeah it
1: keeps asking for blood i'm not sure that's what's weird yeah. anyway that's it for news <laughs> My beard just needs Kingdom Hearts 3. Uh, I can't wait for Kingdom Beards.
0: And we're still on break for a little bit, so what we're going to be doing next is we're going to replay an interview we did with Colby Dolch, and Colby Dolch is the president of Play Hat Games, and he made a board game adaption of Bioshock Infinite. Now, games Infinite was a pretty big game as of like two years ago. Um, it was uh, a game that was a sequel to a very long running franchise, and the fact is, it's kind of interesting to see how that game transitioned to board games. Um, it's also given the fact that that game is kind of more now, the state of what that board game is. Um, but yeah, um, take it away, Colby Dodge. So how did you end up working on a board game about Bioshock Infinite?
2: Well, uh, I actually kind of out of the blue got a call from Irrational Games, and they asked me if I'd be interested in working on a board game for Bioshock. And of course, I said yes, and it was followed up with a scheduled meeting to have another call, and... Uh, Ken Levine was on that call and we kind of discussed what we thought should be in a board game and we went down there and uh, to Boston and met with them and, um, and and they liked their pitch and the rest was kind of history.
0: How much um, how much did Ken Levine look like he knew about board game design when you were talking to him?
2: Uh, Ken said on several loca- like he would give uh suggestions or how you know it might be interesting if this works like this but then he'd always follow it but I don't really know board game design uh, I don't know that that's entirely true right? I think that uh, a number of skill sets carry over uh, between video game design and board game design but um, the one thing that I was sure that he knew was board games because every game that I named off as um, when I'm describing like what I see is is a, a target for this game to be, or an idea for how something might work, I, you know, I might refer to another game, and it kind of does it like this. You always know, knew exactly what I was talking about. So, um, and and I don't know if you know this about Ken, but he's, yeah, you know, it's it's known on the internet that he kind of covertly supports multiple uh, board game kickstarters and stuff like that. So he's definitely a board gamer.
0: Now, how long did it take from that initial call to you starting to build a pitch and a design for the game?
2: Uh, I'd say we spent uh, probably a month. I I called up some uh, of my various designers right away and asked them all to work on building a Bioshock board game. How might it work? You know, uh, We actually... Had three different prototypes built from three different designers, uh, and uh, and played them all, and then and then worked on worked on them from there.
0: How did the three different prototypes look?
2: Uh, not great. <laughs> I mean, I, I, from a visual standpoint, they were prototypes, so uh, you know they never look particularly great because you're just trying to concept out a game design idea from a gameplay we didn't end up using any of them. I mean, we went on to uh, kind of form an amalgamation of them, and then we went on to form a whole new uh, game design after that, which is the game we have now. But they were all kind of proofs of concepts for where we could take it. Uh, and they, they all kind of um, were part of the general pitch. So I think some of the spirit of those games still exists in the final version, but uh, not the game themselves.
0: How differently did they play?
2: Uh, They played quite differently from from one another. They were all kind of... were in the spirit of, we want to scale this back to the Siege of Columbia, the war that's going on. But um, one of them was more focused on story elements, and another was... Uh, was more focused on combat and other had more of a focus on the economic engine, so they're all different.
0: All right. So how did you come up with translating the gameplay of Bioshock Infinite into a kind of territory control board game?
2: Well, I I think our goal was to to not kind of transfer the gameplay in because you've already got that experience in the video game, uh, first-person shooters isn't necessarily something that we feel like translates really well mechanically, but what does translate is that really cool world that they built uh, for Bioshock, and, uh, and so what we tried to do was do something that board games do well and set it in that world that people, uh, fans of the game, love.
0: What were the main challenges in kind of achieving um, kind of a construction of that world?
2: Uh, you know, one big challenge was we didn't exactly know what the world looked like. Hey, in, you know, we needed to build a game board, but it, for a long time, we were, we were working in the dark for what the, the world actually looked like because we were co-developing at the same time video games being made, and so that stuff wasn't all laid out. It ended up uh, turning into us going out and meeting um, that irrational, bringing an artist with us and actually playing the game um, in one of its earlier playable versions and taking screenshots of the various uh, parts of levels and and uh, fleshing out the actual geological part of the world. Geographical, I, I, that is.
0: It's like, uh, uh, the Polygon article uh, that uh, they did on the board game uh, mentioned that... Th- there wasn't actually a layout to how the city connected part the parts of the city connected to each other. Um, what was your reaction to, to finding that out?
2: Uh yeah, I I mean it, it made good sense. Uh, you know they just build what they need to build for that set piece. Uh, so there was there there was some amount of uh, of you know trying to figure out how it to can connect together, but there's also it, One of the cool things about Infinite is these are all floating islands that kind of interchanging, interconnect with one another, so uh, relationship wasn't super important unless they were already next to each other in a level, so um, it it was kind of an easy out.
0: So it was, in a way, it was kind of a relief.
2: Yeah, I, I mean... We just need like this is the territory, and it's a floating island. So how it connects to the other islands is unimportant. Uh, is what it's come down to. Say. Like if we, you know if we were had been doing the original Bioshock, and that stuff didn't connect into each other, it, it would have been more difficult, right? Because you don't have those islands that float up next to each other and then dock into each other. Um, so so everything is you know should have a logical layout, but at that point you know, we would have tackled it. We would have worked with them to figure out what could be a layout. Let's establish this now for for this purpose.
0: So, how effective do you think you were at uh, kind of conveying um, uh, Bioshock Infinite's themes of, say, Manifest Destiny within um, the Siege of Columbia?
2: Uh, I think we were... As effective as we could be, uh, I think that there is some uh, gray area there where you don't want to spoil the video game and the board game uh, because you want people to be able to enjoy both of those both of those uh, you know, pieces of content. And so, you know, we we tried to do uh, the thing where here's some alternate histories. Here's some th- ways way that could have happened um you know, by doing multiple Elizabeth timelines and, and the Elizabeth timeline is kind of the element of the game that moves her story forward and expresses her story through the game. Um and then the rest of it is just like set pieces. Let's put the let's put this world out there. Let's put these enemies out there. Let's put these leaders out there. And um but by the way that they interact through the gameplay, it's, it's, that emergent narrative develops. It's a, it's a strength of board games. It's a, you take away a bunch of those cinematics, you take away, uh, a bunch of that stuff, and, and you end up leaving more to the imagination, which lets you do the emergent narrative thing, um, it, you know, in some ways, uh, better than video games are, are able to do it.
0: What do you see as kind of a fundamental difference between uh, how you have to approach a board game design versus um, video game design?
2: Well, I think with video game design, there's a lot of... Um, you're you're kind of building on what's come before a lot. And you see that in board game design too, but uh, with board games, there's definitely... A focus on what what can we come up with that's totally new that hasn't been done before, and um with video games uh you know that that's there, but you're also i mean you're building on engines that were built by other people uh it, and things like that uh i mean it's tough for me to say with any confidence because i I don't design video games, but um I think with board games. A, you know, you're talking about one person is able to conceive of the game and fully design it uh, with a with you know maybe some help from out outside uh, forces, but mainly it was their driving force that made it happen. The video games, you know, especially of like a Bioshock Infinite caliber. You're talking about a bunch of different hands in that, uh, in that pie and the creative director's role is to manage all of those, you know, creative forces and all that, uh, all that flavor and all that energy and, and try his best to get his team to make his vision happen. So I, I'd say that's one, uh, difference that I could name.
0: Mm-hmm. Also, like, I mean, with something like Bioshock Infinite, it's a first-person shooter, you're going in as one player versus all these NPCs that are built out. But most board games tend to be multiplayer, whether cooperative or competitive. And that kind of changes the way that you have to imagine how the game is played. You don't really have AI available to you. Um, how, How does, like, having that having multiple players kind of change the way that you approach um, a game?
2: Yeah, sure. You mentioned you don't have AI available to you but it's also you know, AI is the result of these games being built to be played by one player because so that's, that's the most commonly way, common way that video games are built. Tabletop games, the most common way they're played is multiplayer. And so you go in knowing you're building a multiplayer experience. And so you can engineer elements that are all about human intellect, interacting with human intellect. And you see that in video games, but it's more common for games to be, for video games to be single player experiences. And so um, it's also your board games allow you to uh, design things around the. the I mean, they're a social experience, and so you can play to that strength when you're designing it. You can design elements that are uh, intended to be little social experiments, if you will. Uh, we've got a game coming out called uh, Dead of Winter, and it was really like the focus in the development was how can we make this uniquely tabletop. How can we make this game an argument for why every video gamer should play a tabletop games? Because they can bring something totally unique to your gaming experience.
0: How has Bioshock Infinite, Siege of Columbia been doing monetarily for you guys versus kind of the other stuff you've produced?
2: Uh, if you, I mean, on average... Uh, it's been doing as well as an average game. It, uh, I mean the story of it was we expected the license to kinda do more than it has done, but when you compare it to like a City of Remnants or a Dungeon Run, which are, or, you know, some games we've done in the past, the, the sales number are, are comparable or better. If you compare it to you know, one of our, um mega successes, like a Mice and Mystics or a seminar Wars, um, you know, it, it, it hasn't been as evergreen as those ones were.
0: Alright, alright. What, what do you think is the limiting factor for that?
2: Uh, I think that you're, you know, I, my expectation at, so it actually came to us despite the fact that we're relatively, like, small, quickly growing, but small Company, and um, that was really exciting for us to be able to work with people that we really admired. That was a driving factor of why we did the game. But we, there was also kind of this expectation of like, oh man, everybody knows what Bioshock is, and there are all these commercials, and and uh, this fantastic game that sold millions of copies, and uh, it's going to draw a, a ton of attention to to this game, to our company, and it has done that to some degree. But there's also the reality of you have to be both interested in board games enough to, you know, want to pick up uh, a board game uh, of of this uh, depth and this uh, weight, uh, and you uh, you have to also be li- interested in and have played uh, Bioshock to Infinite to have really one in, and that you know that crossover on the Venn diagram is. You know, it's there, but it's not, it's not as big, of course, as board gamers as a whole. And so I, I think that the, the license both acts as, uh, this attention grabber for people who know that license, but it, it also, in a way, uh, puts people off if they don't know that license or they haven't experienced that license. They assume that, well, if I was going to get the full enjoyment out of that, I, I would have had to play the video game. And so it, it also acts as a limiting factor in some
0: way. How has the, the process for, say, Dead of Winter, uh, comp- designing that game, compared to, say, building something that had something, uh, had a property or um, a game behind it already, like Bioshock Infinite, how did they compare?
2: Well, for, for something like Bioshock Infinite, where you have a license there are some cool advantages in that players are coming into this game with some experiences of that world. And so they have some preconceived notions of how, who these people are. Uh, much deeper than a board game could could usually go. I mean, um, when I I used to do freelance work for Hasbro, and when you'd work on something like a Star Wars license, you, you knew who those characters were. And so you could ha- title a card and, uh, and see a game interaction that's just like, we rolled some dice and this card had this title, and then this card blocked this and it had this title. But who these characters were, what those titles were, all played into that license. And it brought that emergent little narrative that happened Alive with much less effort than you might have to do if you were introducing an IP, if you're introducing a character, and so um, so that's an advantage of a licensed game, um, a uh, in a game where you're building your own IP, you know the, the emphasis is on you to introduce these characters and make people care about them, and how you go about pulling that off um, varies. In Dead of Winter, we have a uh, you know, you feed the rule book with flavor. We have cards that tell you to read paragraphs from the rule book. We have these crossroad cards that present, you know, a, a piece of story and then give you an option in that story. And then in those crossroad cards, we also put character specific stories, just, to, you know, ways to try to help you care about uh, these characters. Licensed games bring that to the table in that most of your players are already fans of this property. That's
0: how they found your game. So, with um, with board games, do you find that the, the physicality is something that appeals to you more, um, and that kind of inspires you to continue designing?
2: Uh, I'm sorry, could you ask that question again? Didn't quite
0: catch it. What about uh, the the physica- physicality of board games appeals to you?
2: Oh, okay. Uh, I think it's getting together with friends. It's really, it's about that face-to-face interaction. It's about that, you know, mind-to-mind uh, challenge. It, it, I mean, it's as, it's as much about, you know, eating the pizza and drinking the soda and um, laughing with a friend. And, and you, you know, I talked about emergent narratives a number of times in this interview, and they're just so much more lively when you've got somebody there, because you'll find that you know your friend says something about uh, what just happened that kind of spawns your imagination of like, "Oh, they saw that in this way, and, and you might reciprocate on, a, on another time. You're, you're kind of working together to tell this emergent narrative and um, And that's really fun and cool in it, and you know it goes back to. You know, like Dungeons and Dragons and and things like that, where uh, you know it, it's it's really like if I'm you know and and this might just be me, but if I'm at like a, a social gathering, I often find myself I don't know, kind of feeling awkward. What do I talk about with people I don't know? And the really cool thing about board games is they're this focal piece. They're this thing that can drive the conversation, that can drive the social interaction um, and, and I just find that to be so fun and, and cool and then on top of that there's also like this artifact calling to them this is something physical that I own and I can take out the pieces and look at them and, and hold them in this tactile sense and, um, you know software is so intangible and, and, it, and it tends to go away and just kind of live in our memories, whereas, you know, board games are something that's actually up there on the shelves, and there's something with really long shelf lives, too. You know, people that that play board games will go back to the, you know, the same board game time after time, year after year. Um, With video games, they seem to be an experience you have, and then put away. So all that, all that appeals to me.
0: Do you have any particular memories associated with um, the the board games you've designed that kind of highlight that?
2: Uh, there are there are all sorts of fun stories. There's the time where um, one of our friends he was, he was a little more intermittent than the rest of us, and he's very like non-aggressive, and um, he he always had yeah, he had names for the characters that weren't their actual names. Um and and it was just his personality and he uh, he sits down to the table and um he had showed up late and we already had like way more people than are ever supposed to play hero escape at the table and he kind of he gets his arms of his favorite people that he's got you know his, his goofy names for and um, he he sits them he like uh, wedges himself between two players that are already sitting at the table and and carves out of for himself on the map squeezed in between these two armies um, you know and, and talking up all those characters and how they're going to kick so much butt uh, but the the turn order had already been uh, determined at this point it doesn't, doesn't make any sense you start with the first player you go clockwise but at the time we hadn't had much game experience and we had I think we had determined turn order with a die roll uh, in
0: it.
2: and and um, and because he came late, we just put him last in turn order. And so here he is between two people that were going to take a turn before him. And one of them goes, destroys half of his army. The other one goes, destroys the other half of his army. He's wiped out before he ever gets a turn. And, um, and <laughs> this is an epic game with like eight people at the table. And so he's, he's, uh, and he's wiped out on turn zero. Uh, and, uh, you know, whenever he shows up, like that's that's a conversation that's a that's a memory I've had. Um, people recall to me on multiple occasions. There's there's we used to do custom units um, for the game, and uh, we we had a rule wrong where uh, the different characters have heights, and and the rule we had wrong was that height advantage was determined by your height and how high you are up on the board, and I at the time. Was a was a, just a big fan of designing what we call custom units, which were uh, let's let's take figures from other games and let's make Heroescape cards for them and introduce them into our game. And I had made a bunch of Marvel characters, one of which Cyclops, and and in making them on the computer had uh, mistyped the height on one of them and made him basically one height taller than every other average human. And, uh, the player playing them refused to, like, accept that that was a typo. And so it was rolling extra dice on, on everybody with Cyclops, uh, of the X-Men. And, um, and his excuse is that Cyclops was a tall guy. And, uh, and I mean, it's just, like, these, you know, these narratives that are, that are so meta to the game themselves, uh, you know, they end up playing a big role. Of, uh, how how we interacted with the game in the past, and I you mean know, those are those are a couple. And you know if if you got me started on Lord of the Rings role playing game by Decipher, I uh, I have a I have a million of them. But um, I don't know that any of them are of any particular interest to your listenership. But those are some examples of just how the stories will evolve from friendships um, with this this game. Uh, that's, that's the catalyst for uh, all these, these interactions
0: so we've been working on a set of interviews for a while um, this is as we kind of get adjusted to our new environments and building stuff up but just to give you a taste here's a couple clips from interviews we've been working from
1: so there's a great irony to her original game because I think most of us when we think of Monopoly, we think of uh, Uncle Pennybags and you know capitalism and glitz and glamour and stealing properties from each other, but her Landlord's game was actually a left-wing teaching tool.
0: Trying to play the game competitively with friends, how did they react to that?
2: Well, I've always been fairly competitive in the game, so I don't think a lot changed in that respect. But now that I'm going to the world, no one seems to want to play me. (laughs) Which I don't think is fair, because I played with my cousins the other day, and my cousin won. So, the truth is, you just can't predict the game. I'm
1: surely going to edit my stumblings out, but um, I'm trying to think of where to begin. Because this, this was a... Galaga was an important game to me for a variety of reasons. One, um... To start, uh, I grew up in an abusive household, and the arcade was one of the first places I was able to go on my own to get away from all of that.
0: That's it for this week's show. I'm Aaron McFally. And I'm
1: Daniel Rosen. Build to Play with me with
0: the help of... Colby Shout. Follow us on Twitter, at Built to Play, or on our website, builttoplay.ca, to Play.ca. You can get us on
1: iTunes. Or Stitcher Radio. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook. We truly are in all your social media platforms. Um, we are building towards an episode and series all about the mechanics of play and how to affect players. Uh, you can already check the site now for a primer on, you know, games about interesting play mechanics. Next week, come back for a review of Super Mario Maker. Uh, as well, come back to this show for an audio tour through the very worst Super Mario Makers I can make Armand sit <laughs> very Excited. You can follow
0: me on Twitter personally at Flarkon. It's F L R K C O N.
1: And I'm at Daniel underscore Rosen, and I think we were all the sons of Rome this whole time. Thank you so much for listening.